You're listening to More Than This, the podcast where Christian faith and reason explore reasons for Christian faith. Life's not a sequence program from the sky. Life's a story woven up, down, in and out, like stitches in If you enjoy our show, please consider supporting us for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Check out our site at www.patreon.com forward slash more than this pod. Thank you. We're bringing my profession into the light today. I'm talking about mental health. We're excited. Brooke's here. Hello, Brooke. Hi, David. And well, we're excited on multiple counts. Our friend Julia Pickrell's here. We'll bring her in properly, but Julia, say hello to the fine super, folks. Super, super excited to be here with you guys, David and Brookie. Oh my goodness. And we're excited. Uh, I used to sort of snicker and, you know, castigate being in the basement recording, but now it's like, we might as well be at the Four Seasons because we are in person. It's heaven. I feel like a new woman. Human beings. I can see your smiles. Double vaccinated. Yep. I brushed my teeth this morning because I knew I wasn't going to have a mask on. (laughs) That's too much information. I never drew that correlation, (laughs) but I think it's fantastic. Yeah, hygiene shields are going down, so... (laughs) I definitely, I read a New York Times article the other day that people were showering less in the pandemic. I saw that. And people uh, also seem to intend to keep it that way because like we Euro. shower way too much. Yeah. We're going Euro. Totally. Oh, I know. So it's much. a little stinky. A little stinky. <laughs> it's all right. If it, if everybody smells that way, you probably just get used to it. Mm, or is that not true? Just bust out the Axe body spray more frequently. Nice. They love Axe. It's a whole other podcast. Oh, gosh, I hate that smell. whole other podcast. Okay. Yes. So wait, we're talking cues, taking cues from Europe and now middle school boys. So uh, this is uh, <laughs> fascinating. So we are talking about mental health today. And we, we had Julia on because she's super fantastic. And she's a good friend of Brooke and mine and has been for a long time. Uh, Brooke and, uh, lived with Julia and her family in Amsterdam. And they were there probably eight years together, mm-hmm. right? Is that about Just right? Just about, yeah. yeah. So there's family ties there. I've known Brooke, uh, what, 15 years, 17 years? And I've yeah. known Julia like over 20 at That's this right. point. Gosh, we're old. Uh, your oldest son I used to carry around as a babe after church, which is just mind-blowing. I have memories of that. He could carry me now. He's considerably taller. He is a man. He's huge. Anyhow, the reason we had Julia on specifically for this topic, though, is we actually heard her do a sermon recently at the church we attend, and it was on mental health. And it stuck out to me, Julia. So let me give Julia a proper introduction before we just throw her into the fire. Julia is a senior pastor at Vineyard Columbus, um, freshly minted uh, as of this year. Truly. Truly, yep. Um, Has been around the church and around ministry for a good long time, started in campus ministry, maybe? Yeah, in Young Life with young students a long time ago. Whew. So uh, I think anybody in the ministry of any sort also has done some spiritual direction, like Brooke and myself as a counselor. Mm-hmm. We have kind of a special purview on mental health. You know, something interesting I heard the other week, um, Julie has her her CV is very long. Writer, poet. Writer, writer, poet. Cyclist. All these things. Oh my goodness! Super walker, cool. Walker of uh, crazy dogs. Walker oh, gosh. of crazy dogs, but mostly super uninteresting middle-aged lady. Naked cat owner. That's true. That's, that's really that's interesting. kind of a claim to fame. That makes me interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'm really boring. They do have they do have a a double a double take cat. Yes, mm-hmm. you do. Where mm-hmm. you're like, is that a cat? And you're like, is it? It's a hairless cat. A sphinx. A sphinx named Pixie from Rotterdam. Oh my goodness! And it's a sweet temperament. Um, if it were. 
if it were a single woman in the 1990s in the evangelical church, we would say she has a sweet disposition. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where is this going? But that's oh so spot gosh. on. Yeah, she's got she's got a heart for the Lord. She's got a heart for the Lord. Uh, yes, all these things. But I, we actually had a conversation, uh, Brooke and I, recently, and somebody we were talking to noted they were a spiritual director, and they said, thought this was really interesting. They said, you know, a lot of people come to me and what they really need is counseling, mm-hmm. but they come to me for cheap counseling and they don't really know the mm-hmm. difference. And I think, you know, we've brought up the, the idea of spiritual bypass in the past and things like that. We're going to talk about mental health. There's a lot of podcasts and books on mental health in the church. There's a lot of critique of the church, which we're not going to dwell on today as much stigmatizing mental health and mental health resources. Um, our church actually has a, a professional counseling center. Yes. So we're, we're pretty into mental health. Yeah. And if we can get one of our friends on, one of our other friends who actually works there, Erin, uh, she would be fun to talk to as well. But I'm curious today, we don't hear a lot about what it means to be a robust picture of mental wellness. We hear about positive psychology and positivity, and then we hear a lot about things that go wrong. So we mm-hmm. hear a lot about depression and anxiety, all the things that if you're a therapist, you look up in the DSM-5 or the ICD, mm-hmm. and it's based on that sort of medical model like okay, what do we do to alleviate your symptoms of anxiety, depression, schizo, whatever it might be, PTSD? Mm-hmm. And the absence of those things is kind of considered mental health, but I'm not so sure it is. Because mm-hmm. I've, I've, especially during COVID, because right. I've, been, I've been listening to podcasts and things and reading, and I'm like, you know what? I don't necessarily feel textbook depressed, mm-hmm. but... Somebody wrote an article about languishing recently. It's mm-hmm. been making the rounds. Like maybe that's more what we're feeling. But there's something where I'm still not mentally healthy. Mm-hmm. So Julie, you've preached a sermon recently on kind of what it looks like in a sort of a robust way to be mentally well. Mm-hmm. Like not just the absence of something, but the presence of things and the maintenance of things. And I thought that was super interesting. And I know Brooke is already looking at me stewing with uh, you. Give, you have questions already. I do. <laughs> Shall I start us off? Yeah, kick, Julia. Kick Julia a question. Let's, let's get this <laughs> thing started proper. So, Julia, what are some ways and circumstances that have led you to start looking deeper at this topic? Uh, mental topic health. Mental health. Um, that's a great question to ask because I think yeah, most important things that we have anything worthwhile to say about come from inside ourselves. Yeah. I, for me, it's a, been a, a really personal journey. I mean, I think a lot of folks, I've been in ministry for a long time, worked with students and young people and families, even when I was super young, super clueless, you know, that's like how a lot of people get started in anything. You just, you try and sort of roll down the hill <laughs> ungracefully. Mm-hmm. But when, uh, you know, my life was was very sheltered, very ordered, very privileged. I have a, a deep internal sense of enoughness, which for me, maybe we'll go back to some of what Dave was talking about earlier. Um, that was just a, a gift of grace from my from my family. Mm. But when I was, you know, younger and married, and and I've shared this a lot after my first son was born, I had a series of four miscarriages. Um, that was deeply, deeply. Um, painful. And I think that threw me into what I began to understand as a dark night of the soul. That was a language I hadn't heard. It came from church where everybody was happy. You're always fine. You, you know, you pray. We, I didn't grow up with this relationship with the Holy Spirit. So I 
Um, it was sort of very utilitarian, practical faith. And so I began to have this language for the dark night of the soul and began to understand um, in that season why it felt like God was so far. I, I couldn't quite give up my faith, but I had lost it. Yeah. I was looking for it. Like I hadn't give yeah. up, given up looking for it. So that language began to, to become connected to me. And then um, uh, after a birth of, of one of my children, I did go on to have, have a couple more kids. And um, after I stopped nursing my daughter, experienced depression. It wasn't a postpartum depression per se, but it was completely linked to my sort of life and hormone cycle. And man, I spent like a year saying to people, I don't think I'm okay. Like I, I am really not okay. And and my loving friends would say, oh, you're great. You've got three kids. It's crazy, you know, and, and really try to encourage me and, and breathe life into me. And, and folks just didn't have tools. You know, we talk about stigma. I think probably a bigger issue is just lack of understanding. And, yeah. and, um, I remember at a certain point, the sound of one of my kids eating chips was so loud that it made me so angry. I went into the garage and I threw a screwdriver at the wall. And I thought to myself, I don't care what anybody else says. This is not normal. Is not <laughs> I am not okay. Wow. And I went to my internist and I told him how I felt. And he was so kind. And he said, um, this sounds a lot like depression. And he explained body and hormone and babies and ups and downs and cycles. He completely demystified it. And he said, look, you're taking like $40 worth of vitamins a month. I have a prescription. It'll cost you four. Do you want to try it for about six months? And um, there's some funny stories about how how that all happened. And I ended up taking um, an antidepressant. And two weeks later, I called his office and just said to his nurse, would you please tell him thank you? I found myself Oh my gosh. Um, and so that was when I became really intimately acquainted with the the physiology of mental health, mm -hmm. that this depression wasn't linked to my choice, my prayerfulness, my fasting, my vitamins, my health. Like yeah. there was just some switch inside. So, you know, where is it? My brain, who knows? But that was a really pertinent moment for me. And then further on, I have a child who is on the autism spectrum and then so I had an, an interior experience and then an exterior experience of watching someone struggle, not just with developmental um, um, uh, challenges, but then with the mental health uh, challenges that are aside from that. And so watching someone from the outside in and learning, um, he's doing the best he can. What is it? What is, how do I parent this child who is struggling with the assumption that he doesn't need to just suck it up or do better or get or it's he's being willful. Like, what does it mean for me to fully um, accept that he's doing the best he can and that this situation developmentally and with regards to his mental health has been put onto and into him? It's not something he's generating out of his willfulness. Mm -hmm. So that gave me an entirely other perspective. Um, so it's, you know, I, I care really deeply about the conversation around mental health because mental health affects individual people. And I care really deeply about how individual people who are hurting are cared for. You already pointed out some of the complexities that are that lie here in this topic. Mm -hmm. It's not one thing. Um, like I mentioned earlier, if you're in psychology or counseling, you have a fairly cognitive model mm -hmm. of what's going on. It's sort of neurologically based, chemically based. All of that has merit and, and touches on some of the things you were talking about, mm -hmm. some of the chemical hormonal changes really do affect our cognition and the way we're able right. to think the things we tune into the things we can feel mm -hmm. right um 
But I think in that model too, there's also, like I mentioned earlier, this idea that if you just have the absence of certain sort of psychologically interesting indicators, right? Mm -hmm. If a psychologist can't diagnose you with something that you are then pronounced mentally well, just like we know that um, you can be living an unhealthy physical life and still pass a physical when you're young, you know, um, that, that can be problematic. I'm guessing, I'm not guessing, I'm wagering hard that there, are, <laughs> that there are things that we do, habits of the mind that represent health as well. So not just getting yourself to sort of a chemically good baseline right, or a good functioning as possible. But I'm, I'm curious, Julia, as you think about mental health kind of globally, because we'll get into some specifics, because I think it is specific too. We may even talk about the Enneagram I have for a second. Say, make your make your eerie like ghost noises now. I love it. We've got a couple a couple sympathizers here. I'm I'm reluctantly backing into the camp, um, but just only globally. because he's a five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Called it. Ding 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 Nailed ding it. ding. I may have consulted these people in my in my search process because I'm a five. For them to tell me the reason that you texted me is because you're a five. Stop texting me, lovely listeners. Lovely. You're not supposed to do this with the enneagram. No, don't follow you're, us. You're not. It's a fun game. It's a fun game. Not not officially licensed by the enneagram. <laughs> so, given that you can't maybe in a sermon or as like a pastor just sort of giving a general talk to mm-hmm. people can't go, well, if you're, you know, this on the Myers-Briggs or this on the Enneagram, this is what mental unhealth may look like for you. Something that may be adaptive may actually not be healthy for you. Correct. Which I think is super interesting. Let's talk about universals for a second, though. If there are things that could be kind of like universal trends of the mind that would indicate wellness to you, what kinds of things would you think are sort of universal indicators, like you could say, are pretty generally true for most people? Sure, sure. I, and maybe just to back it up to something you said before that I think is really important is um, I think so much so much of anything ta- uh, revolves around language, right? And so we have all of this language that we use around mental health. We have all of these diagnostic codes that we use around mental health. Some of them can be very helpful. But at the end of the day, one thing I often remind people is it's stuff we made up, right? I mean, hopefully a bunch of highly educated experts with good data made it up, but it's not necessarily as quantifiable as we make it out to be. So you say someone has depression, someone has PTSD, someone's dealing with trauma, someone um, has a schizoaffective disorder, someone's bipolar too, someone has anxiety, someone's depressed and and you go like well like what do we mean what does it all mean Mm -hmm. and just Mm -hmm. because a physician or a psychiatrist or my friend diagnoses me with something what does that word actually mean and i i think it's really helpful to remind people on two counts on one count those words can be really helpful because it's like if you are a person on the autism spectrum and you finally get diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum it can be such a gift it's like a way of self-identifying, oh, I make, this makes sense, right? And on the other hand, the absence of it can also can also be helpful. The vagueness of it going like, this is just a sign that all of human life is a bit of a muddle and we all sort of sink into different depths of it at different times. And we're just trying to find language to assign to that part of the muddle. And some things are more definable than others. 
just like a solidly broken leg is more definable than like, I don't know, maybe it's a fracture, maybe it's a sprain. But a lot of the mental health diagnoses um, and ways that we understand ourselves really do sit in that second camp of a, it's a bit muddled. And so we're trying to find language to, to help us, but we have to remember that the language isn't perfect or necessarily totally objective. That's so mm-hmm. fair. I always tell my students, I am a counselor educator for those mm-hmm. of you who don't know. So I train counselors and I do not teach the diagnostic class because I would <laughs> not, would not be my cup of tea, mm-hmm. but I always tell them, you know that these aren't mutually exclusive categories, right? right? Like the symptomatology of these things overlap each other. Like a lot of the, the indicators of depression are the same as anxiety, the same as something else and the same. And we all have these yeah. things. Or, or are as the same as things that you should feel. Yes. In other words, there are plenty of times where it's, I would say in the midst of a pandemic, you know, probably we want to treat depression appropriately, but we probably also want to allow for it to be a part of the normal human condition in this experience. So we don't want to overemphasize or pathologize what is like, yeah, it's depressing. Like it's just, it is like, it is what it is, you know, and, and that, and that's okay. And Mm. so then maybe the question becomes, how do we not expect ourselves to be less human in that moment? How do we be a healthy, resilient, which maybe gets to the question you actually asked me. I'm sorry I deferred, but like, what does it mean to actually be able to live and grow and flourish in the midst of this normal depressing scenario? You know, I have a very crass analogy and I'm going to, I'm going to use it. So please don't judge me. And I will not name this person because they, they probably don't listen, but it's a a type. So I had a friend who had a first baby Mm -hmm. and she nursed the baby basically anytime it stirred at all. And the baby weighed 27 pounds at six months. It was huge. It looked like a football. And I was like, because the, the baby wasn't supposed to make any noise ever, because if, if it did, it needed, I think we're often this way with mm-hmm. mental health, where <laughs> in the West, I'm like, I tell my students and I, well, other people too, I'm like, I am who I am. I'm here because I'm a depressive person. Mm-hmm. Like I have depression. Mm-hmm. You know, all of us have these things that are human traits. Yes. We talk about subclinical levels, right? Are they they sort of clinically significant? Are they causing more damage than they are good? That's kind of the balance that we try to keep. But we can get to the point where if we see any sort of like indicator that we're depressed or anxious, that we get anxious or depressed about it, or we get Mm -hmm. just get flat out anxious about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is weird. One thing I'm thinking as I listen to both of you, and you can negate me if this you know a lot more about these topics than I do. But I was just thinking about the cultural leans. Mm -hmm. And in America, we have this cultural lean towards optimism. Be happy, be good. Success. Success. And so sadness, like during a literal pandemic, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, something's not good. Mm -hmm. So I also wonder sometimes with mental health that, you know, giving space for these emotions, there is something to that, right? Like, this is sad. This, and this is something I've learned from you, Julia, where, you know, in listening to me and in our friendship, you often will notice like, Brooke, you use it language like interesting mm-hmm. or funny mm-hmm. or sad emotions. Yeah. Do you notice that you do that? And I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. I do do that. Yeah. I don't like sad emotions. Yeah. And so for me, Aline has been to giving space to sad emotions. Um, so I was thinking about that, like how we have these leans in culture and yeah, Arlene is very apparent here in America. So I think it, yeah, I think, go ahead. No, Julia. I was going to say, I think that's, I think that's a really important thing to say. And it, 
it makes me think, you know, I think that of the making space conversation is a really helpful space. That's a, for me, that's a spiritual direction space. You know, when we're talking with someone who's having a hard time, you know, experiencing the okayness of their emotional reality or their spiritual reality, a lot of what direction is doing is making space and saying, it's okay that it's not okay. How can we, how can we come in, you know, for us as Christians, how can we come into the presence of God or welcome or recognize that God is here and with me and and then I think, you know, there's a, if that's one sort of part of a, of a triangle of care, the other part, the counseling part is when I think Dave, to your point, when our emotions, when our capacity to, to deal with our reality, when our resilience levels are so low that they're, they really are interfering with our capacity to live in the context within which we've been placed. Hmm. That for me, and I, I, I like, that, I think it's a contextual definition of mental health. One of the things that struck me when my son was first diagnosed with autism was if the whole world could just orient around him, he'd be fine. <laughs> like he literally, he doesn't have a problem. He's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. It's everyone else. It's the teachers. It's the other kids. It's how loud it is. It's stupid buzzing lights. If all that was fixed, he would be fine. Be fine. It's not that he has a problem. However, I, I, you have to admit that there are certain points where like the match between current reality and someone's experience, if the, if it doesn't match, if the gap is so big, if I don't have, if my sadness is so overpowering to me that I can't go to work or that I'm not able to really care for my kids and I'm just watching TV all day and I'm drinking half a bottle of wine by five and I, like if it's that interfering and, and hey, sure, everything went away, I'd be fine. But I live in reality. <laughs> so for me, mental health is a lot about reality. If you can't live in your reality in a way that is progressive and resilient, that for me is when it becomes a question of intervention for mental health. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. And I've, I've, it dovetails with what I'm thinking too about lean. Brooke, you were talking about cultural lean and optimism. I'm reading a book God help us. You know, you can always become super biased in the throes of recency bias, right? Mm -hmm. I'm reading this book, so now I see everything through Mm -hmm. it. But it's a woman who is um, interviewed a bunch of undergrads uh, in mid-2010s. So it's probably about six-year-old, five-year-old research at this point. But the book's called, I think, The Happiness Effect by Donna Freitas. Uh, And I'm probably butchering her name. But she says... Out of all of her research, she did a lot of work with social media on, on with mm. these kids. And one of the things that uh, – it isn't always about showing wealth. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Gen Z and millennials may just have like a nice iPhone while they may not have a Sprinter van and want to go adventuring too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that has currency is not necessarily wealth. It's happiness. Yeah. And she said, this is a consistent thing, portraying happiness, portraying an upbeat life, portraying one that life with fulfilling happiness. And you said when reality is your indicator, if your surroundings are not ones where happiness is actually an appropriate emotional response, that is not mental wellness. Mm -hmm. It is mental unhealth. So if society is saying act happy, portray happy Mm -hmm. all the time, you have a, a you either need to shut down what is happening mm-hmm. or just sort of filter everything towards a happy response, which is itself sort of a form of disease, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and then you throw in a pandemic mm-hmm. where um, the natural emotion to feel about a lot of the things coming out of our lives right now are probably not happiness, although 
we were very happy today because we got to hug each other and around <laughs> don't have to wear a mask. <laughs> yeah, it's so nice. It's so nice. Um, I think that you know what that reminds me of, Dave. And you know, I'm slowly maybe going back to this question about you know how indicators for healthiness or, or whatever. But it reminds me of the distinction. Karen Horney was a student, I think, of Freud's. Correct. I mean, what an unfortunate name I too know, for, for someone Freud. who's a Freudian. <laughs> <laughs> or fortunate. I mean, it's kind of like either way. You can I mean, swing it perfect. either way. But, you know, neuroses and human development, this idea that um, that one of the things that makes us more and more anxious or more and more neurotic, and, and this isn't necessarily um, mental illness as, as what we would say with somebody with bipolar or schizophrenia, but with more effective emotional um, issues is that distance between the real to the ideal. So my ideal is I'm happy. I'm in a bikini. I'm tan, I'm by the pool, and I'm super Instagrammable. It's, you know, our our ideals are very shallow, but our reels are very deep. And I think our culture does put us in a place where we're supposed to, we're supposed to be okay if our shallow ideal is postable. Can I get one moment in my day where I can pretend to be that person and then it should be enough while our reels are just sinking and sinking and sinking? Mm-hmm. And there's very little context in, in which to try to understand that, to understand where's the proper place to have a conversation about this. Am I simply sort of spiritually dislocated? Am I depressed? Do I have a mental illness? Um, and I, 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 so I agree with you, David, that that's, it's a huge disservice. I think especially about a lot of our young people right now who feel like if they hit that shallow, ideal, postable moment, enough, it should solve, but they're solving for the wrong problem. And so you have folks who are interiorly more and more disoriented or just completely self-unaware. I mean, I talk to people all the time who are completely unaware of what's going on inside. And, um, and I think we, you know, giving people language or, I mean, now now to come full circle, giving people language to like, how could, if our interiors were going to be stable and solid, what are those components? And I, I do, I think, I think of resilience. I think of enoughness. I think of a sense of core identity, which, you know, and the challenging thing that I come back to in this conversation is I often, I often sort of feel like, man, the things that make us fundamentally healthy however you want to define that are very often things that happen before we're four years old. And that can be really overwhelming to try to, to try to go like, Oh, okay. So now I'm 35 and I didn't have that. And I'm experiencing all of these places of break. And, and so for me, that's why the, the spirituality of the conversation is just as important as the sort of social, emotional, you know, how are we engaging socially and emotionally? How are we scaffolding in those areas? Because so much of it, you know, I drive out, you know, for listeners who are in town, there was a student um, in our local high school who took their life several, several weeks ago. And she was a member of our community. And as you pull out every day, as I pull out of the school, somebody put this little like yard sign spray painted, you are enough. And I was like, I mean, it's just like our kids are just like, am I enough? Is it ever going to be enough? Is, could it get fixed enough? Could I get better enough? And this, again, I, what I'm talking about, again, are like the emotional, relational things, not even when when we sort of hit that 
line and sort of go across the other line to the to the more brain-based mental illnesses that then um, it's not just how am I relating to myself or the world or people around me. It's that, you know, I have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, I have a diagnosis of bipolar. How do I live in that space um, with that diagnosis? So that that's even, I think, more complex. It's, um, you know, I've, I was, I've been, I used to read this social psychologist that I really liked. It's nobody's ever heard of him. Thomas Chef. He wrote a great book. Um, I can't remember the name of it now. I have it in my office. It's it looks very unpopular just by the cover. It's one of those <laughs> where it's like, don't read yeah. me. But I read it in grad school, and that's where all those books get read. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's like they count on it. They get their you know seven hundred dollars for the year. Somebody assigns it for a course. But he he says it's sort of a the basic affective reaction. And it seems sort of hardwired into people. It's not just in the West, I don't think, but people sort of register things happening to them and the things they portray on a, a sort of continuum of shame to pride. Yeah. And I thought, boy, that opened, that unlocked so many doors for me in my mind where it's like we're always sort of uh, on this invisible scale. We don't even do the ranking ourselves. It feels like it's outside of our control but we're always sort of putting things on a continuum of something shameful, something we can be proud of. Mm-hmm. You talked about the Instagram posts, mm-hmm. um, things that we can sort of, or we're proud enough of to, to post or whatever. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering many things, but that stuck with me. I read that like 15 years ago. And I'm wondering in a mentally healthy person, either that, uh, that, needs to be satiated. There has to be enough pride or, you know, something built up or else we're, we're on the wrong continuum fundamentally. And I don't know what you both think where it's like something running from pride to shame. We may always be on a treadmill, right? If we're, if we're always trying to, I'm wondering if there's a different way that we can advocate for people. It may be going against nature, but if we're, we're, if we could just sit somebody down and say, what are two better anchors or what is a different way to think of events in your life? Not as something on a scale from pride to shame. Mm -hmm. It's a weird question, I'm sure, but I think it's, I think it would be helpful for me to at least hear you, what you both have to say about it. What do you think about that pride to shame thing? Is that, does that make sense sort of as a, as it stands thing as you look out in society, but what, if it does, what, what might be better? Do you have thoughts, Julia? Yeah, I I do. I mean, I I think it's a great, descriptor i tend to be wary of any anything involving a binary (laughs) just because then i feel like oh we're self-limiting but i think it's a very helpful binary spectrum and as a person of faith i think for me shame is 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 like the quintessential definition of the fall of of humanity the the result of of a brokenness that we all experience sometimes people hear the christian word sin and they think of it bad stuff or mm-hmm. um but i just i think of the feeling that we all have that everything is broken and we are too and we can't fix it that that's what sin is so that to me is really linked with a sense of shame and we mm-hmm. you know you see that even in the christian narrative all the way to the other side, which you also see in the Christian narrative, which is which is the fall, or I'm yeah. sorry, um, uh, you know, this or this idea of pride. Um, um, I am God, you know, mm-hmm. I am nothing, or I am God, and 
And I think most human beings live in that, whether you're a person of faith or not, right? You, you, we kind of, we see this in a lot of popular figures like, oh, that, that, that God complex right there. Like, this is a little weird. <laughs> or on the other hand, we all know people who are just unsati- unsatiable. Is that a, you know, they can't be filled up enough because their shame is so deep. So I think for me, the question is, how do you, you know, is there a way in that, is there other language to add into that spectrum that give us the sort of, this would be a great place to pause. Is there a place of pause? So we're not, because again, if we swing back and forth, that's, that's also neurotic. And I know a lot of people who live that life. You have a high, high, especially in ministry. People are up front. They get a big buzz. Everybody loves you. High, high. I'm like, God, next day you have a failure. Something goes down, you crash. And people live on this continuum. Like, dude, this is it's super unhealthy, but it's also terribly exhausting and yeah. way not fun. Like, what if we hit the pause button in the space of what's real? Can I experience enoughness in the place of what's real? And mm-hmm. so if my reality is that I am doing horribly at school right now, can I look that, can I feel enough even though that's not where I want to be? Can I figure out some ways to move towards what I want it to be while not ignoring what it actually is? For me, Mm -hmm. mental health, as far as it's in our control, has to do with figuring out how to be able to exist well in the real. To to me, that points, Brooke, I want to hear your thoughts on this too, because I'm like, to me, that points to, okay, well, if you're the knower, though, if you're the one who's feeling the pride or shame and registering that, can, can it be up to you? in the midst of that to claw out of and find reality and feel enough to me, that begs for community. Totally. So to me, that means that you can't be the only one looking at your circumstances mm-hmm. because we've, we've talked about it, Brooke. Uh, we mentioned on the, on the podcast the other week where you're right. like imposter syndrome and the things, the, the lies we tell ourselves without somebody else for you in the, when you were talking about your new job and mm-hmm. how you fear you're doing poorly at it. And, but nobody's told you that you were telling yourself that. So it took other people to say, what? You couldn't be the only one trying I to find the difference. Yeah, exactly. And, and takes... this is what a healthy family system does for a young child. And if you and and even those who have had a healthy family system, we need it. Can the continual? Um, uh, I think the affirmation of this is real, and you are okay. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have that in community, we're going to search for it through shallowness, like likes, and yeah. and and it, and that's where social media just. It, it's soul sucking because it gives people the mirage that they're getting what they are hungry for, but then they're still hungry. So Julia, if someone hasn't had this by age four, this can be achieved in spirituality, Christian community. Well, I'm not age. a child development. So mm-hmm. <laughs> just, so I want to say like no, that, no, no. so that I'm being very vague. At yes. what, you know, I, I think um, what I Definitely don't mean to say, because it's absolutely not true, is that one has to have some sort of idealized, you know, highly protected childhood to be healthy, because we know that's not true. Um, There's a lot of folks who have really traumatic childhoods who yet grow up with a great sense of a high sense of self-identity and resilience because they've, they've been walked through really, really difficult things. So I think my point is that as much as as we can get human beings into those kinds of contexts, the better. And so if you're a parent listening and you've got a couple of like three, four, and five-year-olds and you are sick of playing Play-Doh and Legos and you just want to hit your head against the wall, like 
if you think you're depressed, go to your doctor. <laughs> but if you're just worn out and you're wondering, does this have any meaning? What I want to say is like, yes, it has meaning to you. Take your AirPods out and look at your kids in the eye and communicate to them. And and if you're working with students in a classroom, it's the same thing. And if you're working with adults and if you're a therapist, like the world is saved one human being one moment at a time, I'm convinced. So I think the more our, we can be people who let other people get into spaces where we're giving that sense of affirmation. This is what's real. You're enough. How do we be resilient in the space? How do we accept who we are? That, that that continually helps us develop into healthier and healthier human beings. And I will say, and I know we have to wrap things up, but oh, I do. I'm asking you one more question. Either. Okay. Well, I just, I, I think for, it's really important though to note that there's so many kinds of mental illness that really don't fit into this conversation. So again, when, when folks are, are, there's all sorts of um, significantly interrupting brain-based mental illnesses that need to be treated in the way yeah. we would treat, uh, you know, a, a, a severe break of the leg. We go to the doctor, we look into medication and we're, we're looking at the whole spectrum and the whole surrounding of, of a human being, but we're understanding that some of these things really are, um, are, are physiological in nature and need yeah. to be treated with respect in that way. Not as like, Oh, let's just sort of chat our way out no. of this. That's really good, Julia. Yeah. yeah. So there's something I want to just insert. I think it's going to be a future episode and I would love to have Julia back for it, but maybe Aaron could tag team with this <laughs> too. Cause she teaches on the Enneagram. So the, the idea that I do want to put out there with mental wellness is that, based on the way some of us are made, mm -hmm. um, there can be certain places we go that for somebody else may be perfectly mentally adaptive yes. and good, but for you, it just is crazy making. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have a corporate job that uh, just does not, for you to be a good soldier in your job, like creates a fair amount of mental unhealth for you. Mm -hmm. But somebody who's wired differently, they're very comfortable in that and their brain can function optimally totally. and it can be well. We don't have time to go into that because I think it's a whole conversation, but I do want to put that in there. We realize that and don't hear that mental, uh, like Julia was just saying, being mentally well or mentally unhealthy is not just one thing. Good point. Um, I do want to ask this question though, because I've been thinking about it a lot. Sure. So, so much of my upbringing, uh, in order to, if I had some sort of like implied version of how to stay mentally well, it was about um, prevention and avoidance. Don't look at this. Don't look at this kind of movie. Don't look at this kind of magazine. Don't let this kind of language come into your mouth. Don't think this thought. Don't, don't, don't. Mm -hmm. And it was all about prevention. That was going to be with keep... those kind of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about, Brooke. <laughs> she ran with the bad crowd. She did. She did not. <laughs> what are you talking <laughs> about? Like, that is Renegade, so, Brooke. So patently unfair. <laughs> rule follower. It's like me. <laughs> But then I've, as I've come to think more, I'm muddling things a bit here, like about what is powerful. Because often we look at God and we, we think of God as all powerful mm -hmm. and we see that power as a, a source of prevention. God and his all powerfulness should prevent bad things from happening mm -hmm. to me. And more and more, I mean, the more you look I at the Bible. That, I wish that. <laughs> I wish that too. Yeah. But I, I think more and more as, as I've followed Jesus for a longer time, the thing that I've seen is that the more powerful and the more chosen thing that God just demonstrates power through is redemption. Yeah. I'm wondering how that plays into mental health mm. for you. Cause I think we have such a prevention mindset where sometimes like we didn't prevent and we are in a bad place and then it's like, we've screwed up. We've lost it. Like, mm. 
talk to me about what you think about a sort of what is the, the greater part of maintaining mental health is prevention has to play a part, but where does, where does redemption and redeeming the mind that we maybe have just sort of dragged through the mud of horrible criticism or a bad family system or whatever, how does that, how does that play out for you? How do you see redemption and prevention? I, you know, there? I think, yeah, that's, that's brilliant, David. I, I think it, what immediately comes to my mind is that if, if for a person of Christian faith, at least, that we follow the model of a God who came deeply into the wreck and then very slowly walked through it and then suffered the greatest degree of suffering, failed the greatest failure, and then found redemption. And so if I think mm. I think the hope for us, and I've experienced this, this is it's real hope. I've seen real people really changed when they understand that that the god of the universe through christ walks through the wreckage suffers the deepest failures uh, experiences the greatest loss and then keeps going like it doesn't end there so redemption means it doesn't end wherever you are it doesn't end there so yeah and that i think is i mean it's it's Mm -hmm. if it wasn't true it would be so obvious and and we yet we see so many folks who might not be healed of depression might not be healed of certain diagnoses might not be healed of developmental things or whatever but have such a degree of a sense of the withness of god that 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 withness brings with it a sort of redemptive capacity that no amount of just like feel better or distract or drink or watch yeah. a movie is going to get you to. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's probably the ultimate question that you're ending with. It will definitely, it will actually be our ultimate question because it is the last. It's a lovely way to end. Brick, weren't you, were you not moved by that too? I yeah. was like, it's a lot to think about. <laughs> but it's Thank so, you, Julia. So good. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank you. I knew 30 minutes was a, uh, a fool's errand wasn't going to happen. <laughs> you watch it on, or wait, listen. If you listen on double speed, it's probably there. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> too, too much wisdom in the room. But anyhow, hope we gave you something to chew on. Hope you did focus on that last point that if you are listening and you are suffering right now in your mind, in your life, that it is not the end. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, there, there's, there's a redemption that's available to you and it's, so part of part of what mental health is, uh, depression is looking at today and seeing ten years down the line and feeling like you're going to feel that way today. Anxiety is kind of the same, imagining a really the worst version of the future, and I think redemption really chips away at that and yeah. starts to say, "No, this is time limited. This mm-hmm. is a bad day. Just go to bed, mm-hmm. try again tomorrow, mm-hmm. and make sure you're not the only one looking at the reality of your life. Make sure you have some trusted others who." can take a take a glance with you and opine and let them let them talk mm-hmm. so i could say much more but then you wouldn't listen to anything else because i would have told you everything and i won't do it thanks so much julia again for being with us sure Life's not a